This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. For $5 a month, you can actually see the Thin Green Line interviews and other video content on Patreon.com. Just search the Thin Green Line podcast on Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com and feel like you're part of the conversation. Join us. Welcome to another episode of the Thin Green Line. And today we have Shane Bedard with the Air Force National Guard, who is a tactical medical instructor. And certainly we've worked with the National Guard on both sides of the country, John out on the West Coast and me on the East Coast. And these guys are the medics. I'll tell you, when we see those guys coming and we need them, they're, they're, they're priceless. So, and I'm hoping today Shane can actually teach us a few things that, you know, will help us out in our day-to-days as officers and even as civilians, because you never know when you're going to come across that car accident that has a wound that is significant uh, to, you know, a critical, critical incident, and you may have life-saving skills. Um, just because you heard it, I've heard so many times that, oh, I heard that on this. So <clears throat> thanks for joining us, Shane. And, uh, can you give us a little bit of your background and how you ended up doing this job? And, um, and thank you for joining us on the thin green line. Yeah. Ha- happy to be here. Um, always excited to talk about, about medicine. Um, <laughs> you give everybody that, that little bit of edge, even if you're an experienced practitioner, there's always some things that you take mm. away. Um, I, I learn constantly, um, and, and, and I'm always in the books. I'm always thinking about different things. If you see me just stare off into the distance, I'm just thinking about, you know, hey, what could I do in this type of situation? And we'll just rein it back in. But mm. um, I started out in the military, Air, Air National Guard, or Air Force, active duty. In 2008, um, I joined to be a PJ, um, pararescueman. Um, didn't quite work out for me. The, uh, basically fate had other, uh, other plans. And so kind of as a consolation prize, I, I think the air force has a, has a pretty good sense of humor. Um, they sent me up to Fairchild air force base, um, with the walking air force to be a parachute rigger. 
So we have the survival school up here, and then um, the survival instructors have requirements to jump to maintain proficiency because they teach emergency parachuting. One of the things uh, they need is they need support, right? And and I'm not humble. I was I was a little bit of a kick in the midsection to learn that I was going to be going from operating at, at a certain level and, and aspiring to do certain things to being a support guy. But in the reality, um, in the military, in the Air Force, we're all just support. We're support for each other. So that was a that was a humbling experience. But I ended up making the best out of it. Um, getting assigned with the survival school, we had the ability to um, basically cross train and learn other things just because we didn't have the manning that we would like. Um, the Air Force, we tend to have different jobs, and and you do your job. But in these other um, support functions, you and especially with a small relatively small unit you end up doing a little bit of everything so i got to work with the helicopter unit out here at fairchild we have four qe helicopters that were built in 1969 uh ended up nice yeah ended up uh, accumulating about 250 250 hours in the back of the huey um, by my estimation just kind of doing support for both training uh once i got um once I got a little bit more comfortable, I started doing more hoist um, and, and some of those other things, pretending to be a survivor so that they'd pick me up. And I was, I was a glorified role player, but I got to ride on a hoist in a Huey helicopter. So it was a win-win for me. Um, I met my wife, ended up uh, ended up meeting my wife in Spokane. She was going through nursing school at the time. Uh, I started getting an interest in medicine. I was thought, oh, this is, this is great. Maybe uh, I could, maybe I could do something with that. And I'm not smart enough to be a nurse. There's, there's no way. But <laughs> EMT, EMT, I could do. So that was my compromise. Uh, I ended up doing EM, EMT school nights and weekends um, while working active duty. From there, uh, I really liked it, and I wanted to continue. So I worked as a fireman um, nights and weekends, volunteer firefighter. Uh, kind of a, a little bit of a um, kind of a little bit of a lens shifting to back when I was actually would vacation up in Maine as a kid, uh, mm -hmm. basically in those formative teenage years, um, I got to go up to my, my uncle's camp, not a cabin, a camp, uh, up in Maine in Jackman, Maine. And we used to basically go around fishing. Um, he sent me out on a boat by myself, a little small two and a half horsepower engine on the back and kind of figure it out. Um, so going forward, and I did have my boater safety. <laughs> Key essential there. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't want a ticket. Um, yeah, so, so actually learning all of that, um, I was really interested in, in this area working. They have volunteer firefighters. They don't have paid, a lot of paid uh, firefighters up in Maine. And so, hey, what, what a cool opportunity to volunteer up here in this area. Um, that's how I got to practice and learn a little bit more about medicine because it's not just a certification. You have to continually put effort into it. Mm -hmm. um, so, so some pretty cool interactions with that. Uh, my wife is now a doctor, way smarter than I am. She's a pediatric nurse practitioner in, in, in the emergency room up here. Um, so, wow. so leaps and bounds um, ahead of what I, what I was able to do um, as an EMT. However, always a good resource to have in your back pocket when you're thinking about, Hey, what about the kids? What can I do with, um, yeah, when, yeah. with treating these kids and stuff? Um, so, so kind of more of my background, I, I, I got really interested in being a firefighter. Um, 
went to the guard uh, when my active duty time was coming up. We have a, a unique opportunity in the guard to do a, a stateside mission. Um, so we do have federal commitments as well, but the state is also um, kind of gets some of our, uh, a lot of our missions, our taskings. Um, and so we have the Homeland Response Force, which is a urban search and rescue team uh, that I became a part of. And then that led into some years as a wildland firefighter and all of that. But, but the reality is that the best job that I've ever uh, as a tactical medicine instructor. So um, kind of a unique and unique background. So when you think about that tactical medicine, you think, Oh, let's special forces medics. That's, that's ranger medics. And those guys are, those guys are great. I have a couple of colleagues and peers that I work with uh, and, and I learn constantly from them. But also my experience, my humble experience as a firefighter working with law enforcement on the day to day, I feel I could cover some of those gaps. And whereas common logic might be in combat, hey, best medicines, five, five, six, return fire, take cover. Well, in a law enforcement sense, and I saw you cringe there, John, um, you're like, oh, I don't know about this, you know you know, no. returning all that fire because I own every round that I fire. And there's some, there's some very unique, um, you know, things that I need to have in mind, uh, use of force and, and all these other things, um, you know, when we're, when we're at home and, and that's fine. We just need to be aware of it as, as a military, as, as a program that's serving law enforcement. And then we can kind of tailor our training to their needs and mm -hmm. say, Hey, okay, well, that's what we would do. Oh, send in rockets, more, more rounds, all these things. But let's talk about, you know, a way to do things smarter um, or uh, controversially or, or in, in a second vein, maybe it's not always a gunfire. Maybe it's not always right. a shooting. It's, sure. it's, it's those um, banned substances that you guys are pulling out of the woods, right? Mm. It's, it's all of these threats that it doesn't really matter. It's, it's a threat to me. So I'm going to tailor my medicine based upon that threat and not just stick into doing medicine. Right. Yeah. You know, you know, Shane, you hit it on the head there and we got to talk a little bit uh, before recording the show on the fact that, you know, we did, you know, we did a lot with counter drug and working with you guys and the air force and the guard and, and working with the Delta level medics and EMTs paramedics and getting the best trauma training we had ever seen as game wardens and stateside LEOs. Um, because you're right, we can't just, you know, return fire and, and gain cover with rules of engagement on kind of our domestic hidden war, if you will. But having that trauma medicine knowledge when we're taking fire or we get exposed to carbofuran, you know, and all of a sudden someone's having respiratory failure. How do you deal with that when normally, traditionally, you're trained in basic CPR, basic first aid as an LEO? And that game has changed largely because of what you and your colleagues are doing mm. is taking the knowledge you guys get in the military, especially with all the combat we've seen in the Middle East and through the global war on terror. Um, and getting the latest and greatest techniques that, heaven forbid, we do have a gunfight. And you know from my background and our mutual stories, we've had plenty of those. But it's been, you know, punji pits, trip hazards, uh, banned toxics, um, you know, dealing with suspect trauma care from, say, a dog bite that isn't fatal, but it's a it's a heavy bleed bite sometimes, depending on the, the target of the bite. So all that stuff was just, it was a game changer, you know. Mm. And we know from training with military and other special ops groups and patrol groups, 
we obviously put a lot of times into firearms training, right? And defensive tactics and qualifying relentlessly and keeping a very high standard. But when it came to trauma medicine or medicine uh, techniques in general for, for trauma response, there really wasn't a standard. You know, there wasn't uh, a quarterly, hey, show me some proficiency on a sucking chest wound and how are you going to deploy, how are you going to do self-care if you take gunfire and you have to use your, you know, your first tourniquet or go into your second tourniquet. I mean, that was completely Greek five, ten years ago. And now that game has changed where mainline patrol, LEOs, first responders, search and rescue, everybody needs to have, I think, that level and we're finally getting that to patrol and you're doing that, you know, um, on the state side level with groups and, and tell us how that all came about and why that's so important. But, uh, kudos to what you're doing for one. And it's yeah. good to see this happening outside of what I'm used to on the West coast and the Northwest being not far from you in Montana, but near Spokane and seeing what those local agencies of my small towns in Lincoln County say are getting, and they're getting really good stuff now largely because of what you guys are bringing. So um, how'd that all come about and how can we expand it even more, I guess is a, a two-pronged question. Yeah, absolutely. So I stand on the shoulders of giants, guys that have come before me, guys that have learned the hard way, our, our rules. Um, medicine is the one part, it's, it's perfect for me because, especially military medicine, because it's yeah. the one aspect where you can ask the question why. I can't really do that in the rest of the military, right? I can't ask right. why. I just yeah, have yeah, to, yeah. okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and do that. You want me to take that bolt, back that parachute? You know, mm. I'm doing it. Yeah. So I stand on the shoulders of giants, the guys that have asked why. Okay, why do we, why don't we use tourniquets? Is it more effective to use a tourniquet? Is there something I can do while I'm getting my tourniquet ready to apply to help this, this patient? Yeah. All too often, we want to we want to switch into like look for tools, and it's like, hey, I got a tool for that. And reality is, like digital pressure, like using the hand, you know, maybe I can get that, maybe I can get something. So we stand on the on the on the, you know, shoulders of giants, um, surgeons that have put their their even their medical career out there on the line because of unconventional thinking, just trying to solve a problem and ask the question mm -hmm. why. So. I really like the science and evidence-based medicine focus of our program, but in, in military medicine in general, because we're always trying to gain yeah. that edge and that competitive edge. Um, the, the other, the other piece is nothing like what we teach is secret. Like that's, that's the great thing. I can tell everybody about medicine all day long. I'm not at risk of leaking documents or anything like that because right. I don't know anything. I just know medicine. Um, small pieces of metal impact the body the same way, regardless if you're dressed like a houseplant like me um, or, or a police officer, right? Like it doesn't mm. really matter. It's, it's, it's the mechanism. And, and then the tactical sense, like I'm solving that tactical problem so I can unlock more medicine that I'm doing. And so more to your question on how this actually came about, um, the military recognized the gap. We said, Hey, we, we have this knowledge. How can we set these guys up for success? You know, we know California is getting after it. They're doing all these things. They're requesting medics. But any good medic will tell you that they can become a great medic by cross-training the rest of their team and yes. being a part of that team, being integrated. And so, because I might get, you know, hurt as well. And that's a selfish reason to say that, but, but I need extra hands, right? Think sure. about, think about a dam that's getting, you know, that's, that's leaking. I plug it and a few more plug, you know, leaks start up. Like I need extra hands to be able to um, do what I need to do. And honestly, like, 
another another piece of this that's really hard for for experienced medics is to step back and not actually put hands on patients in direct care and that's a really hard thing to do Mm. but that's something that your my bandwidth will go a lot farther if i'm taking that tactical pause that step back with my team that's trained up that's cross-trained if they're able to do some interventions because if i have one casualty i'm always thinking i have another right Right, right. Um, we say PACE acronym for for a reason, primary, alternate, contingency, emergency. But we also say if I have one, I have none. If I have two, I have one. Yep. Um, so if I have one patient, I have more. And I always I always game plan worst case scenario. What is what is going to happen? Hmm. Um, and what's going to kill this patient the fastest? And that's what I'm addressing. Whereas ABC conventional thinking, we're like, okay, yeah, head tilt, chin left, opens up the airway. I go to check something else, his airway closes because I'm no longer holding it up. Well, then he right. doesn't have an airway, but he's still bleeding out while I'm messing around with the airway. So um, unconventional thinking, unconventional thoughts applied in a scientific manner gives us more data points. And in this day and age, we, we can use that to to gain that edge to be able to treat um, basically and do as, as much good for as many patients as we can. Um, cross-training is huge. And so I think the, the DOD recognized that they said, Hey, we're, we have, we have counter drug funding. We have guys. Um, but, but if we don't teach what we're, what, you know, if we don't try to put ourselves out of a job, um, you know, we're going to always be employed and that's fine, but, but we can force multiply, um, the special forces medics that I work with, um, they're force multipliers. They work by, with, and through. And I kind of think, even though I'm not in that world in a conventional sense, I kind of like to be a part of that at least stateside, I can work, work by, with, and through these local law enforcement officers to save lives. And, and we've seen that time and time again. Sometimes I get cryptic emails. Sometimes I get like, we get actual letters um, from agencies, mm-hmm. you know, uh, lessons learned, text messages, um, mm-hmm. and just saying, hey, the, or I see news reports and I'm like, well, I was training in that area. Um, that name looks familiar. <laughs> I look at our roster and lo and yeah, behold. Yeah, 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 yeah. One of our game wardens actually treated a patient or, or, or his partner found the patient and treated for hypothermia up in the middle of, you know, the rugged country of Maine. So really cool, like little wins here and there. Um, mm-hmm. By far, by far the coolest job I've done in the military. But that's um, my I, I just happened to luck into this job. Um, I don't know if they just wanted to hire. It's predominantly Army programs. So I don't know if they just wanted to hire an Air Force guy. Yeah. Um, but I took advantage of that. I you know, and, and it's, it's stressful. I, I started this job with a whole head of hair, but, uh, but no, I started this job and, and, you know, and, and it's, 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 it's tedious. It's a lot of time away from home. We trained over our program, trained over 1600 law enforcement officers last year. Wow. Um, this year we've been at all four corners of the States of the United States. I think in a couple of weeks, we're going to, going to Florida, um, and then we're going to go to, we were just in Hawaii a few weeks ago in Kauai. Um, and, uh, and then Maine, of course, before that, the week before that. Um, but I think, but I think honestly, when I look back, I'll be like, hey, this is the, this is the most impactful program that I've been a part of. Yeah, for sure. That sounds, uh, epic. And you said unconventional stuff and that's, that's what me and John dealt with. That's what game wardens are dealing with. That's what police officers deal with sometimes, you know, the unconventional stuff. So when we have an injury, uh, we're in the woods we're we're remote and, uh, you are the perfect person to train 
that unconventional stuff. Uh, I'll give my experience with 911 operators and nothing saying bad about them, but they have a protocol that they go through and it's mm-hmm. street side. It's not wood side. So when they tell you to stay there and it's sub-zero temperatures and you, you, you could freeze to death, you know, that's, but that's what they're ta- taught to do is that, that protocol and flip through that book. So it, it, unconventional. I love that, that term because that's the medical stuff that we deal with is unconventional. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not, it's not a high speed, like, oh, I'm a, I'm a shooter, I'm a tier one, whichever. It's, it's just literally not, not conventional. It is um, like, like John in the early days reading his book, I was like, Hey, this is like, we're not, we're not well-funded supported. Like we're some sort of special ops unit. We're just a bunch right. of guys with a problem and we are trying yeah. to figure it Try out. We have yeah. buy-in from our agency and that's what we're doing. And so, um, eventually you'll get to the point to where you get some of that, some of that money kicking in and, in, and whatever, but you got to put some wins on the board first. Right. Mm. Um, but again, like with, within medicine, everything's open source, everything, you know, the human body hasn't changed I don't know. I think there's a few short, you know, there's less appendixes now than there was before, but, but still like we're, <laughs> we are relatively the same. And so bleeding and all these other things, but what changes is the threat, the dynamics, um, you know, and, and what we're going into getting that person, that treatment, the fastest I'm not, I'm, I'm, I consider myself. Okay. Um, some think I'm pretty good. Uh, I, I try to humble myself as much as I can and there's definitely better, but I know that I'm not going to that guy, I'm not going to solve whatever trauma problem that I have. I know that it's the people with bright lights, sharp objects, fancy mm-hmm. letters at the end of their name. They're going to be the ones putting guys back together, uh, stopping that bleed and all of these other things and, and amazing things in the OR. My job is to keep them, you know, at, at a certain level and get them to that to that definitive care. So definitive treatment for a gunshot wound for trauma, anything is a trauma surgeon. Um, and I know there's a bunch of trauma surgeons that are like, oh, yeah, that's, 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 not, that's nice. That feels good to hear that. But um, but again, that's 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 the truth. And I'm just I'm just the middleman. It's a logistics problem. Yeah, that's the thing. We, we got to get them to the we got to get them to the surgeons to make that final life saving move. But it's it's just amazing to me, Shane, in seeing in the last 10 years how much better and more efficient we've gotten in the field of, you know, holding people together in that critical window. Right. Um, and we, like you said, when we started from, you know, from reading the book and know a little bit about my background, when you reiterated that it was, it was kind of like, <laughs> we have a problem. We got you know, our, our motto on the team was fill and flow. We're going to have a lot of challenges and how are we going to get through this safely? And how are we going to keep doing the job to protect wildlife and protect the public? And we had the advantage of having a delineated team at a point. We had the advantage of having you guys from AirNat Guard, whether they were PJs, other officers coming in primarily from the Air Force, some Army guys as well, because, you know, Adam Moffat and with Team Hawk and, and Central California, we were dealing with, it was Army and Air Force combined force, just like what you got up there. Um, had it not been for what you guys were imparting to us, I can honestly say we might have lost some lives in other officer-involved shooting instances we had after getting that training um, and or our canines. You know, canines were getting stabbed. Canines were getting assaulted, naturally so, because there was big stakes if they were if our suspects were to get arrested in that cartel front. Um, 
But something we've all kind of talked about a little bit is it's one thing to have those threats you deal with as a special forces or a special operations team that has a medic, that has a ton of guys that are skilled, has contingencies, have plenty of tools to deal with a threat that you know might be deadly. But what about the individual patrol warden that's on his beat or her beat three, you know, hours behind a lock gate, which Wayne, myself, and everybody we've ever mm. worked around have dealt with. And they take a gunshot wound, they take an assault, they take a stabbing, and it's going to be a self-care thing where they got to work with their tools to stop their own bleeding until backup gets there or something similar in a city police department, say in the Spokane proper. Um, that's where things have really changed. And you're doing a lot more with that where we think it's very critical as well. Tell us about the agencies that are really buying into this and bringing you guys in and just knowing that you're available. That's the thing. I mean, this is not common knowledge. I think nationwide, when I talk to cops all over the West coast, Southwest up here, they're like, Oh, I can get military medical tactical training at that level. Who do I call, man? I had no idea. So <laughs> it's free. good. It's happening, but here we are and it's free. Yeah, it's free. Yeah. So, yeah, so um, the agencies that are really buying in on it and, and, and taking it and like, Hey, I need to put this across the board for my guys. Um, in recent memory, I mean, we set up, I took a, I took a, well, our unit sends us to Chicago, um, every other year, it seems like for sustainment training, the jokes are the same. Um, but the, uh, it's, it's physician attending physician level instruction on a various, a lot of disciplines it's hands-on, um, there's cadaver labs and anatomy labs and, and all of these things to get us, to get us better. Because a military medic is really kind of an EMT on the outside, and, and we have we have a wide range of career fields that are not medical that our guys are doing during the week, and so we got to get our edge somewhere, right? And we have we're fortunate enough to be able to have the resources to go to Chicago. Well, I took a advanced hazmat life support class, and the, one of the guys there, the opening guy, he was a SWAT paramedic with Chicago SWAT team, and so of course we got to talking, and instantly he liked what I was saying about trauma medicine. Nice. But also he was like, well, I teach this to my guys, but I'm to the point where they, they, they hear me and, you know, they're like, yeah, yeah, you've said this before, like, you know, all these other things. And he's like, well, it's because it's important. So we came out and we, we set up a training with his team and they just bought right into it. They're like, yeah, let's get these guys out there. Let's learn. Let's, let's have them train us up. And we were saying the same thing this guy's been saying for years and teaching the same thing, but they really liked the training because they're like, Oh yeah, well it's, well, it was different because you know, they're military or whatever. And <laughs> he's like, I was military. Like, yeah, and you guys get it too with anything that you guys are teaching as well. Like you bring yeah. in that outsider mm -hmm. um, that's speaking, find an outsider that's speaking your same language. Um, and, and they're going to get more buy-in from the team because it's an outsider and, and all that. And it's kind of humorous. Um, yeah. but they really liked it. They, they, we trained up one of their teams um, and they had actually had like, almost double digit SWAT call outs. And we were in the early parts of the month of January. So mm -hmm. um, it was already, they were already exceeding their SWAT call outs per days of the year that have elapsed. Um, oh. But, uh, but Chicago, it was, a, it was a great time. They really appreciated us, set us up with the training. I attended a tactical Seaburn class with them um, just to kind of build, continue to build that relationship. Um, and they still, they still talk to us and send us all these things. That was back in January, um, saying, Hey, this is, this is, was an awesome training. Um, we want, we want to do more of this. We're incorporating more of this into our team. Um, the other, the other remarkable uh, team, we've kind of had a fish and wildlife theme this year. 
training up. Uh, we we did we supported nice. Washington Fish and Wildlife's uh, in service last year, nice. and then this year we had a couple of their officers come through our class because they really liked they really liked our mannequin. We had a we had a fancy mannequin we brought out, and <laughs> that was probably the reason. But they really liked our training. They appreciated it. Um, they introduced us to some other some of their other colleagues, and some of their other colleagues drove in from like across the state to take our class. It, it was it was pretty cool. Um, we trained up Idaho fishing game. Um, nice. Over, yeah. So they, uh, they really appreciated the training they really liked it. Um, they definitely changed how they pack out their trucks after that's, that's the one right. thing I remarked. They, it's no longer a yard sale when they realize they got to transport somebody to that next level of care. Um, they have, I think they're going to a bin system where they have everything in bins. They can just throw out three bins versus like 15, 20 items of whatever game warden apparel and accessories. (laughs) Um, And then we also, we trained the main warden service. That's the picture that I sent you, Wayne. Yeah. Uh, They, uh, we, a couple of emails and a couple of phone calls. And next thing you know, they were wanting to bring us to the advanced warden school, um, which is, uh, which was actually a pretty, pretty honorable invite because that's, that's a huge uh, Mm buy-in for a program. And I know, I know the, the, the guys that have gone before us and, you know, and, and the true, um, you know, the, the true, you know, medical providers and medics and all these other guys, um, you know, they, they've, they've really paved the way and we, we gained some of that credibility. We went there. Um, it's, it's a big move to like, if, if any agency to bring, to bring outsiders in and train their new employees, right. It's a, it's a huge, um, you want to, you want to kind of do some of that control work yourself. You want to test it out. You want to see what they're saying. So they bought into it. They brought us out there, um, and train, we trained up their brand new wardens and some of their tribal wardens as well. Uh, and then they, they ended up, they just graduated, I think last week. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, that was, that was a really cool, uh, cool opportunity. And then there was some senior wardens that attended our class. Uh, it's actually a pretty cool story. I'll tell you guys later, but we actually had uh, a couple of guys tell us, "Hey, I was in the boat of in the category of voluntold to attend this training." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, supervisor, sergeant type, and uh, he's like, "Hey, after the fact, what you guys put out there, what what we were able to do in this class, um, I'm walking away with tools for the toolbox for not just myself, my family, anybody I pass on the road." you know, that sort of thing. But, but really they appreciated the the efforts to, to make them that much safer. So, um, that, that's, that's pretty remarkable. Um, and you're a hundred percent right, Shane, cause that, that's what caught my attention when you were t- training uh main game wardens. Cause they just don't let anybody through the door. And no. I was like, Oh boy. <laughs> I mean, so. I mean, their, their schoolhouse is a castle, uh, you know, yeah. so they, <laughs> yeah. they don't let anybody in there. No, no, no well, doubt. And you, you've apparently penetrated those defenses and, and did well, and I'm sure there'll be an invite back. And, uh, yeah, so that, that's impressive when you start doing that stuff with that level of, uh, people that, you know, so, cause we, you're right. We do get medical training on a regular basis, but to bring it up to that level. So for sure. The other thing I kind of want to talk about is the, 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 the development of what we're carrying around now as far as tourniquets, because, you know, when John and I started off, that was a thing of the past, but now you look on a duty belt and it's generally a tourniquet on there. And the other thing is people are using it for life-saving, you know, incidents now. 
uh, and it's handy. It's there, whether you have it in the cruiser, whether you have it, but that's that's a piece of life-saving equipment. I think they're being issued now that uh, I might have got it as I was going out the door. I'm not sure when you got a tourniquet, John, um, in your career, but uh, you know, I think the last few years I had them in the cruiser, but now I'm seeing carrying on the belts and things like that. So, Yeah, absolutely. So tourniquets, um, widely, widely utilized. We know they're safe. Um, there's, mm. there's different kinds of tourniquets. I think there's now a TAC Med industrial complex somewhere in North Carolina that puts out a ton of stuff. Um, so we, there's a little bit of quality control that goes along with buying tools, just like, you know, a pistol is not just a pistol, right? Like I'm not going to use a high point, when I'm preparing for, for, you know, for whatever I'm preparing for, right. That's, that's my lifeline. So, uh, the cat, the cat tourniquet combat application tourniquet gen seven, um, that's kind of the gold standard. It's the Glock of tourniquets, if you will. Yeah. Uh, I know there's some SIG guys out there, but it's also, we could, we can call it the SIG of, yeah. of tourniquets. It's okay. <laughs> uh, and so that's, that's the gold standard. Um, nothing beats it for self-application. However, like, like Wayne, you said, the, there's, there's instances where cops are applying tourniquets for life-saving interventions. It's not just the self-application and there's mm. certainly body cam footage to support self-application. Yeah. But as a medic, I have um, a task in a role and, and by doctrine, I'll be applying tourniquets to others as well. So there's a soft key wide tourniquet as well. And it's usually attractive because it says soft T, so soft, you know, everybody's like, oh, wow, it's awesome. But the advantage for me is it doesn't have Velcro. And uh, you can tell by my uniform, I, I got a lot of Velcro. The Air Force mm, used some, some, right. some Velcro and we got to put a patch there. So with self-application or self-application, it's not the greatest. I think the Velcro helps the cat for self-application. But if I'm applying a tourniquet to others, I don't want Velcro because that just sticks to each other. I don't know if you've put like a few tourniquets together, a cat tourniquet, oh, yeah. a big Velcro yeah. ball. Yeah, um, yeah. Think about an active shooter kit um, or any kind of mass casualty kit. If you have a bunch of cat tourniquets and – I mean, they're out of the package and all these other things, they're going to be stuck to each other. Mm, and so right, with those soft tees, you can make it like a little Pez dispenser and you can, you can apply tourniquets um, pretty easily to others with that. So that's some advances. Um, but honestly, like, like let's think in recent memory. Um, and unfortunately it's a lot more recent than I'd like, but any of the mass shootings, any of the, you know, these things that we've had a lot of patients, mass casualty events, the one that's actually been studied, Boston Marathon bombing. Mm -hmm. Guys, how many tourniquets do you guys think were applied? Um, how many commercial tourniquets do you think were applied in that, in that event, the Boston Marathon bombing? Five. Uh, I would hope a lot. I'm going to say, and this is, this is just a, a, a t complete wag, a wild ass guess, but somewhere between 20 and 50. So, so zero, zero commercial Ooh. tourniquets were applied. That's yeah. Yeah. So everything was improvised. Okay. We did not have, I mean, it, it, nobody again, had them, I guess. At the, yeah. At that, we, yeah. Tourniquets. Yes. Um, Cause ma there's massive extremity injuries, amp partial amputations, mm, right. amputations, but there were zero commercial tourniquets, right? I don't, I don't, I mean, maybe I, I would now I'm, I'm woefully un, underprepared in my own personal when I'm out hunting, backpacking and, yeah. and I, I strive to, to, to avoid that complacency. But when I'm out in the woods, I'm not thinking about, I'm going to yeah. get mauled by a cougar. Right. 
but uh but no so so think about this like i go to a, a marathon i'm like i carry a tourniquet commercial tourniquet um they're just not widely fielded so they actually improvise so they use clothing um their security yep. cam footage i think of like sporting goods stores of guys ripping t-shirts off the wall at right after the blast um nice. you guys are both cops i know what you're thinking people got free t-shirts but <laughs> but yeah they were using them for improvised tourniquets right so so being able to improvise is also important because how many tourniquets do you carry? How many tourniquets does a, a, a game warden, how many tourniquets does even a, right. a medic that, you know, is, you know, or a former medic that's a police officer, how many tourniquets do they actually carry on them? And you can carry a big backpack, but I guarantee you, you're not going to be doing all of your license checks and everything with a big backpack, right? No, we're so gonna, yeah. You're going to leave that in the truck. So. Yep. Um, the ability to improvise a tourniquet is still widely um, needed. Um, so Boston Marathon bombing, three died. Um, really, really unfortunate and tragic. Um, however, if we, when we looked at the evidence, we could see that there was a significant number of uh, improvised tourniquets applied and that, you know, we had no fatalities, no loss of life uh, from anybody that received the tourniquet. Right. They they were the three that, that died. Unfortunately, you know, that proximity and timing and, and all these things that we go into. But but looking at the tourniquet itself, like we were actually able to arrest massive bleeding or at least get us stop some of that bleeding um, while we were getting them to that next level of care. Um, there's, awesome. there's quite a few teaching hospitals in the in the greater Boston metro area. And that also played a role. Um, the biggest thing was, is that transport of that patient, um, stopping that bleed while we were in route and, and kind of going from there. So mm. and that's just the ones that have been like routinely studied and, and looked at. Um, we've had, we've had students that were like country music fans. And so they were at the Mandalay Bay shooting and, and all these other things. And they were telling us stories about how they were, how they were improvising tourniquets, improvising chest seals from tents and shades and all of these things. Um, there was also an anecdote about firefighters that were improvising tourniquets and they were like down to their boxers. I think they ran out of patients. Um, typically we, we teach using the patient's clothing or things in your surroundings to be able to improvise tourniquets. Um, but we appreciate the efforts. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyways, I think it, I think it's still pretty remarkable. And then transporting patients, getting them to that next level of care is huge. Um, because again, we can only do so much on the X and I think we're, we've seen instances where that's a, that's, that's, we could have done better. And so being able to, I guarantee you, at least in my neck of the woods, maybe, maybe closer, um, to you guys as well. A lot of guys don't go to work for an ambulance company because they want to be an EMT, right? They have, they have career aspirations. They're regular, they're pretty young at times, or they have other things going on, like other businesses, things like that. Um, I know that a senior officer though, a senior police officer can drive better than most EMTs with an ambulance. So maybe, maybe when we're looking at, Hey, my partner's hurt, let's, let's do some quick damage control. Let's, let's patch them up. Let's, let's stop that bleed and we'll drive them to the hospital. We'll scoop and run. And there's, there's supports, um, evidence to support that. Mm. Um, as well out of Pennsylvania, um, kind of closer to you, Wayne, that, that, that that's actually supported based on studies that have been done. So advocating for scoop and run and a lot of departments, that's a policy we're seeing as well. So, yeah, and that Shane, that's just showing the adapt, you know, how we've adapted to mass shooting incidents. Like you said, Boston, Mandalay, right. 
And I mean, even some of these uh, active shooters, you know, in the schools, if, if we have to go in as first responders or civilians and deal with that, but it, it is good to know. And you read, I think you read it well for our listeners that if you don't have a cat tourniquet and you're dealing with that type of trauma, you can deal with it. You know, you can deal with, mm. with clothing, with a belt, Absolutely. you can improvise. And is it going to be as good or as effective or as fast? Maybe not, but it's better than nothing. But as long as you have that mindset to, to deploy and have those skills that you guys teach really well. Um, but talking a little bit about gear, because of all the wardens that listen to this and other first responders and military folks, I agree with you 100% on the CAT. We've gone generationally through the CAT since the MET yeah. team was formed. Um, and then it got back to patrol where that's what we issue, you know, and using yeah. a derivative of that. And it, it's it's been great. Um, and we're always carrying at least one. And for our hunters and anglers out there, I'm in your same boat. I look in my hunting pack every <laughs> couple months when I shift stuff around and realize, oh man, I took a lot of stuff out for weight because I need a lot of water. I'm hiking far today. Yeah. And there's my little Ziploc bag with, you know, like the quasi sportsman's trauma pack that isn't my battle, my dark angel. Yeah. But what I do try to have in the hunting pack for just everything, a riding pack, if I'm on a snowmobile ATV or whatever, is one cat tourniquet. And I like to take an Israeli, you know, like a good Israeli bandage because it can be a splint. It can be a sling. It can be a pressure dressing to stop bleeding. It just does so much without bogging stuff down because this thing gets big quick and pretty soon you just take it out and you don't use it. Right. So yeah, if you, exactly. if you had to, if you had to recommend and, and maybe I'm off, maybe I'm missing something, but if you had to recommend what are the absolute essentials you should have in your vehicle or you should have in your backpack or your hunting pack if you're going out uh, for any reason to deal with, you know, whatever you might encounter within reason? What, what What's the bare minimum you would you would like to see in a pack? So I really like to have tourniquets. Um, I recognize that not everybody has them. Um, I've bought more than my fair share of tourniquets um, that, that I've been prep to use yeah, um, yeah. with my own personal money, but you know, it, it, it is what it is. You got, and sometimes uh, we use pay to play around here quite a bit and, and we've yeah, definitely yeah. done that. Um, I, I like uh, a strap. So mm -hmm. unconventional logic, it's, it does the same thing as an Israeli. Israeli is a really expensive a strap and some gauze um, yeah. and maybe that little plastic foot that's on there. And some of them, I think uh, the, there's other versions out there that are kind of going away from the foot, but either way, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Um, so a um, you don't really need combat gauze. Um, although it, it's great to have it. I think it's just really expensive for like your average guy that's out there in the woods. Have I used it? Um, when I cut my finger on an ice auger? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, have I, have I, have I seen cases where, you know, a guy cuts themselves shaving and it's just one of those continuously, you know, bleeders and they've used some expired combat gauze to stop the bleed before one of their promotion boards. I've definitely seen that. So it's, it works. Um, I think the studies based on the tactical environment, right, which is outside, you know, Hey, there's a gunfight or there just was a gunfight. What is the efficacy? I think it's, um, we're a little bit more effective with combat gauze, but really regular, regular gauze, um, I always tend to think of those kind of wounds anyways as like a pressure game, whereas I'm trying to stop and cut off that that right. uh, bleeder versus um, using the hemostatic agent that is in combat gauze anyways. So again, Ace Wrap, Curlex, Fluff Gauze, um, whatever you want to call it. I wouldn't say mm -hmm. gauze pads. I think those are um, not really a appropriate for like a gunshot wound or something like that. There's some other uses that you might think of with those, but, but that, that curlex that you get from like 
every every cop knows the nurses at the ER. Yeah. I'm sure they just got to talk nice, um, and you might walk away with with some resources. Um, yeah. Strap, no, nobody's gonna bug you if you if you have to spend your own money. It's only like you know I don't know a dollar fifty or something like that for actual Ace Wrap brand Ace Wrap. Um, I think th- those are staples. Um, tour- tourniquets, yeah, great. Um, can I improvise a tourniquet with an ACE wrap? Absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. there, there's ways that I can do that. I can apply a little bit of mechanical advantage. Um, those, uh, cravats, um, those like little, or just a triangle piece of uh, cloth. Mm-hmm. Um, those work great for improvised tourniquets, but also like water purification. So you're thinking like backcountry type stuff of what you're sure. doing. Like maybe you need a filter, but that also can be like a game bag or something too, that you might have, mm-hmm. um, so just a little of those things. Um, yeah. I'm trying to think like splints. I mean, hopefully you're, you're in an area where you're hunting and recreating where there's like sticks and woods and trees. If not, you're in a desert and huh, I don't know. Um, but uh, maybe you might want to carry something in case like you, you need to splint something up. But then again, like, you know, I don't know. You just be able to figure it out. Pretty simple. Um, generally speaking, our clothing um, we're pretty well prepared to be able to splint things and secure things by way of, uh, yeah, yeah. like, like if I have my sleeve up towards my chest, I know I'm like demoing on a video and I'm getting away from the microphone. But, um, <laughs> it's all good. Yeah. yeah. It's first podcast. So yeah, if you well, use the yeah, John you know, Norris like, knife to rip that out, that'd be great visual. So <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Take, take, take right. the harness cutter and don't cut your chest, Shane, and just cut across that multi-cam top. <laughs> man. I don't want your bosses. Getting we we might get more people on Patreon seeing that stuff. <laughs> yeah. Now we're going to live demos. This is a step above. Shane. Yeah, step exactly. Yeah, there, there we go. But but on your topic, what I like is immediately when I mention my kit, I'm thinking from a law enforcement officer. I'm thinking from a you know an operator, right? That's why I'm thinking Israeli. I'm thinking tourniquet, mm-hmm. you know, the type of yeah. tourniquet. If I'm going to have, you know, hyphen seals or whatever, because I have that, right? I have it in inventory. Yeah. I, I, I use it all the time. But get out of that head of spending $100 and now you spend 10 mm. and you get almost the same result. And that's really good for our listeners. And so you get Wayne's I, kit. I really appreciate you putting that out. <laughs> yep, absolutely. So you get the thin green line IFAC, for, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> no, so, so absolutely, you're absolutely right. So, and then this isn't just like the tactical guys. And this is, this is the guys that are, you know, that, that don't have, um, a lot of resources, tools, yeah. anyways, they have to, they already spend a lot of their money for the pay to play logic because they sure. have to buy gear that they need for their law enforcement jobs. So mm. to add on a couple hundred bucks on top of that for medical gear, you know, Hey, Ace Rap, what, it, what exactly is it? And, and I, and I like to think that with my colleagues, because they, they say, well, we don't really talk about Israeli bandages and stuff, but we say, Hey, let's, we need this tool and all these things. And my mind as a firefighter is like, well, I, well, my department would never buy that or never had that. We just used Curlex. We used Ace Wrap. Um, we used Fluff God, whatever we use. Like, yeah. and that's the thing. That's a, that's just a, an interesting dynamic there. I actually found um, with the department that I was with, our law enforcement officers actually had a readily accessible supply of combat gauze of tourniquets of all these other things. Whereas I think when I noticed in our truck and this was, this was years ago, I noticed one tourniquet and that was like our tourniquet. And what I would do, of course, because military, I would take it out of the package, uh, the plastic, and I would kind of set it up to where like we knew where it was and everything. 
well, what would the next shift do? Uh, they would yeah. show up and they would see something out of the package and they'd throw it away thinking it was used. <laughs> there so, with the single. Great. So yeah. So, um, <laughs> but again, just, just that paradigm shift, um, unconventional thinking towards, you know, our problems and, and what exactly are we trying to accomplish? Knowing a little bit about anatomy and physiology is, is great for that purpose as well. Um, it doesn't have to be like a, a big, a big, lifelong learning of anatomy and physiology, because I'm, I guarantee you there's a lot of words that I can't pronounce, but, you know, just a little bit of that exposure to the Harry Potter Latin that is medical terminology was actually really helpful. So knowing, knowing there are certain areas on the body that are amenable to a tourniquet and certain areas that are not. So junctional wounds, um, basically armpits and, uh, and where the uh, thigh meets the pelvis, like, mm-hmm. like that area, well, we know there's an artery like right there too. So think about an officer in a seated position, mm-hmm. like, like downward firing rounds into the, into his lap. I mean, that's a huge, serious danger zone. I actually saw that last year when I was in Chicago, when a uh, you know, kid came in, he was in a seated position. He had a couple of rounds lodged in, in that area, junctional wounds. Thankfully, they missed his arteries on one of them, but the other side, you know, definitely did hit an artery. Um, a tourniquet would not have worked there. And so unconventional logic is, well, I need to stop the bleeding. So um, what the, what the Chicago paramedic did is they held pressure right about where the belly button is. It's called the descending aorta. And with enough pressure, it actually, it's not an uncomfortable amount of pressure, but it is significant. Mm -hmm. We can actually shut down the blood flow to the lower extremities. And that actually bought time. For the surgeons, the trauma nice. surgeons and the physicians to get in there, and they nice. were messing around with with all of that. And so, um, hmm. again, just buying these times, these stop gaps. Now, right. it's not necessarily going to work out in the woods, but you know, maybe there's an adaptation. Maybe you know, you you contact a snowmobiler that got ejected from the road, and as you're going up there, you see he's massively bleeding. Well, your bag of all your goodies, your dark angel kit, and everything's in your truck. So are you going to run back to your truck and then bomb off the trail again to uh, take care of the snowmobiler? Fill and flow, baby. Yeah. So, so I'm going to grab, I'm going to, I'm going to shut off that flow of that blood and I'm going to walk him back to my truck or to my tools. So bringing the patient to my tools, it's a geography problem at that point. So being able to, to kind of solve that and Mm -hmm. think outside of the box. And, and that is what law enforcement officers are great at because they're not, they're not structured and indoctrinated like I am to, to medicine, right? Like, like I had a very formal EMT class and fire department training and and all these things, whereas law enforcement are are a cop first and they get some medical training and they kind of start to build and continuously build upon that. And they're like, well, let me just move them over to the, bring them over to the, the truck. Whereas a fireman, like I wouldn't, think about that i'd be like no you're a patient you need to lay there in that perfect anatomical patient position Hmm. and that's and that's also another training scar that we see upon ourselves but um so interesting story from uh from a main uh warden he actually had a snowmobiler um get ejected and had a a tree limb impaled into um the body didn't didn't hit an artery or wasn't massively bleeding but it was still sticking out. And so um, the warden was, was telling me, he's like, hey, I actually had to trim the branch a little bit. And I was using my Leatherman. And so, you know, four inch like 
yeah. like knife and you could tell how that was going. <laughs> Interesting thing, because that, that brings into a challenge, like how are we going to evacuate this patient? Right. How are we, what are we going to do for this guy? Um, because there's a tactical problem getting him off of the side of, of, of Mount, you know, whatever. And then there's the medical side of, I don't want to move this, you know, impaled object. Right. We don't, we don't just pull out impaled objects. Um, what, what, if we did, if we did, what's something we don't do? If we pulled out an appelled object, what's something we don't do? We don't put it back, right? <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, so, they, so basically, our, our game warden friend, he, he trimmed the branch, right? He cut it cut it down to size. Um, really? Okay. They get this patient to the life light, right? They transport him over to bring him over to the helicopter. And they. it turns out the branch was too long. Um to, to go in the life flight helicopter. I think, so I think they said that the slot limit for impaled objects on a life flight helicopter was 18 inches. So who, who knew that they had a slot limit for that? Um, wow. Okay. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, so, so these little things that you hear and it's obviously applying a little game warden, you know, fish and wildlife regulation, you know, humor yeah. to it, but um, certainly, certainly something to like, I wouldn't have thought of. Um. But something that, you know, unconventional is like, hey, a game warden would definitely come across this. Yeah. I yeah. think the more weirder and the more exotic um, of the situation, the more likely it is that a game warden um, deals with the problem. Yeah, that, that hits it on the head, man. And because, again, we're in, you know exactly what we do on, on, on those remote area levels. And improvising and overcoming and adapting is really truly an understatement if you don't yeah. have tools. And that's one of the reasons when we picked the dark angel and I want to get your you know professional opinion on this is when we were looking for trauma kits first for the special operations group, which now patrol have on their tack vests and they all carry, it's not a camouflage dark angel, but obviously it's a, you know, a flat dark earth. It, it's matching the tack vest. So yeah. it, it doesn't have that military look in public, so to speak in the urban areas, but be that as it may, we went to that kit because it had what we needed and it was small enough that we would have it with us if we right. were on a trail. And that's what we were getting into. We were leaving all that, you know, all those essentials in the truck. And quite frankly, we weren't getting enough of the repetitive perishable skill uh, trauma training to be comfortable with the tools. And we all know what happens when you're not really comfortable with your firearm or you're not comfortable with your baton or your taser or you're not comfortable with the tourniquet. Are you always going to carry it, you know? Probably not. And that's what we were getting into. So we, we had to find a kit that people would have with them wherever they were within reason um, and then be confident enough to use it. So, and I know the Dark Angel isn't the end all out there, but there's a lot of new kits that are coming out every couple of months. And what yeah. do you recommend if you have a recommendation, especially for people doing our type of job and even for police officers in urban areas on their vests, I'm starting to see Dark Angels or a derivative of that kit on those and i'm sure you guys are probably seeing stuff better than than we've even come across since i've left the team so that's really helpful and brought up a good point if you have suggestions please share them yeah so i look at uh i look at gear and i, I mean i i don't really look at there's some brands right like of course i wear you know i don't gator sunglasses or, right. or whatever sunglasses yeah. right like like some brands um but as far as I don't, I don't really hold any, I mean, a cat tourniquet, right. I'm not going to really compromise and buy, you know, some sort of uh, maybe Chinese made tourniquet. Right. right. For sure. Um, 
some things are quality, some things are not. And there's definitely a wide variety of everything in between. I look at the March algorithm and I base my gear off of that. Um, but the, the tactical logic in the logical sense is if I'm gr- grabbing something and I'm going to field it for everybody on my, in my department, there's a, there's an affordability piece with that as well, but also like, I want them to have it with them. I'm not going to spend all this money for something that they're just going to leave in their truck, like the mythical right. truck bag. And so that's, that's actually a, a key point. So something that's out of the way. Um, something that doesn't impact another pouch that an officer or a great majority mm-hmm. of the officers might have like, Oh, that's where you keep your Skittles. Like that's fine. But like we need, we need our gear to be like right here. Yes. Um, yes. And so um, something like that, honestly, something like that, that kit, if it, if it has the essentials and the essentials really for me, for an IFAC, I just use the March algorithm and I, and I, and I go down the list and say, what am I going to do for, for what? Typically, um, my tourniquets are not in my IFACs um, because I want them open and accessible. I have like there's rubber bands that you can attach to the Molly gear Mm -hmm. um, that make it a little bit easier to deploy because the rubber bands just break. Um, If you're in a high visibility sense where you're on patrol or something like that, um, maybe black hair ties, um, you know, um, bribe bribe the wife to get some black hair ties or or procure them somehow. Um, and you can go that route, kind of similar, similar focus. There's definitely more expensive black rubber bands, but mm-hmm. um, again, again, like juice worth the squeeze. What is my department? What will my department allow me to get away with? Um, combat gauze, like like some sort of packing gauze. Uh, I think fluff gauze is a little bulky if I'm going to have it in a small like pouch. Yeah, a combat gauze comes pretty vacuumed and compressed, or just a regular compressed um, gauze as well. Um, Chest seals, I mean, there's there's plenty of places that are flat to be able to put them on your on your pouches, uh, mm-hmm. tucked away in the vest, maybe on the inside or or outside of a like a like where the velcro and the keepers and everything go. Um, you can kind of find a place to sash them. I wouldn't take up space in an IFAC with a chest seal, um, just because yeah. uh, how accessible is that, right? And and right. being able to do that. Sure. Um, airway adjuncts for me. Um, I just go right with positioning, honestly, with, with most of my stuff. So, so I kind of bypass the NPA because how effective can I breathe out of a garden hose? I mean, reality is, right. (laughs) uh, I'm a a bigger guy. I need a lot of air. Um, my trauma patient, especially me as a trauma patient, anybody as a trauma patient, they're going to be, they're going to be uncomfortable. They're going to be anxious. They're going to be breathing a lot. Um, last thing I want to do is one, if they're conscious, I don't want to like stick a nose or a hose in their nose. Um, but I don't want to like restrict their breathing based on like the piping that they have available. So positioning will solve like nine out of my 10 problems. Then, uh, yeah. So, so we already talked about, uh, out of order chest seal. Um, and then, and then really that's, that's it. Like I have a way to deal with hypothermia. Like you, I mean, there's pockets everywhere, right? Like, um, whether your team is sponsored by cry precision or not, um, you have, right. you have pockets everywhere that you can put, you know, um, some blankets, but also like hand warmers. Uh, that was something that Chicago PD did, um, for idea. their SWAT yeah. team is they, they took a couple of hand warmers and a space blanket. And that wasn't like the end all be all. They had wool blankets or some other sort of kits and stuff with their Bearcats mm-hmm. and with their trucks. But that was just enough to get them an edge to keep a patient warm. Uh, trauma patient is a hypothermic patient. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's like 120 degrees or, um, you know, 
or, or not, uh, they're going to bleed out. They lose the ability to thermoregulate. It's a lot easier to keep a patient warm. Um, John, you're in California. So if I take a, a cold burrito and I wrap it in a piece of tinfoil, <laughs> what happens? Oh yeah, I'm good. You're gonna insulate yeah. me just fine. <laughs> well, it's still yeah. It's, it's gonna yeah. it's gonna keep you cold, right? Yeah. If I take a warm burrito. If if I if I find a way to actively warm up that burrito and I wrap it in that tin foil, it's gonna stay warmer longer, right? Yeah. You're so, cook me. Yeah. Well, the thing like it's like a, a mylar blanket. Really, that's that's for that's for like after a marathon or or something. I run a race and, and I kind of maintain that that body temp. Um, yeah, but a trauma patient, I need something a little bit more robust. Like yeah. wool is great. Wool works when it's wet. Um, Wayne, you know that, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's just the fabric of the gods. Right. And, mm-hmm. and it's, it's perfect. Um, and so being able to manage, um, that patient, keep them warm. It's cause it's just so, it's so difficult to warm somebody up once they're cold. Uh, once a trauma patient's cold, the emergency room, the operating room at a certain point, once you get the blood stops the clot, when it gets to a certain point, um, operations have to stop once a patient gets to a certain temperature. Mm-hmm. So they have to, and then that's if they're done or not. If you know, you hear about trauma patients having multiple surgeries, well, that's a big piece of it. That's a component. That's a consideration when we're starting to look at that is when you open up somebody, they lose their ability to thermoregulate. And so being able to, to, to keep them warm is huge. Um, but that goes in the pockets, right? That, that's not an IFAC type thing um, because we have enough stuff we have to carry anyways. Mm. Um, to be able to be effective at our, at our actual primary mission casualties, like that's a contingency. Um, we're first responders. Yeah. And, and, and all of that. But, but the reality is, is there's still a mission going on. There's still a threat. There's a, there's a law enforcement purpose while you are out there where you are and we need to keep at that uh, or at least mitigate any additional threats, um, when we do take a casualty. So, um, so IFACs. Uh, I'm glad you said that, right? Because I want something that my guys are going to carry and it's not just going to stick yep. in the bag. Because you, you can make somebody carry stuff. But, um, you, I mean, game wardens, even even like sheriff deputies, all these other things, they're a pretty independent bunch. Mm. Um, they're going to be like, well, I didn't have this because of this. And, and you really want them to have it and you want to encourage them to have it. And so um, on that note, something that we do is we actually have training material or old expired material and what we'll do is when we use that in our class, we will pack out the officer's IFAC. We'll take out all their stuff that they that the department issued on their real world, real world things. Mm-hmm. And we'll pack in our training gear. Mm-hmm. What we'll do with that is then we will take that um, and they will go through our scenarios or go through a scenario and yeah. practice from their pouch, where their pouch is at so they don't have... Um, because we can pack them up in a backpack full of tactical medical stuff. Yeah, it's perfect. Well, they're not going to carry it, right? So um, going through a scenario, being able to work out of their gear, Mm -hmm. um, and going from there. And and we do also bring in some tips and tricks and things we like, or or at least like concepts that we like. So like a fanny pack, um, that's that's a uh, a pretty decent game changer. Santa Ana PD um, actually has something like that. It's uh, they're, They basically have their IFAC that they clip around their waist when they know they're going mm-hmm. to a trauma patient. They already have stuff in their like ankle holsters and things like that that they can deploy. Nice. But being able to get them that little extra top up, um, that would be perfect for game wardens, um, officers. It doesn't have to be a fancy um, tactical fanny pack at all. It could be like a Jansport, whatever, Walmart thing. Um just being able to have something to be able to plus yourself up 
Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Especially, especially my canine guys that are going hiking, tracking people, they might have a backpack, but a lot of that's also sustainment for the animal too. Exactly. Yeah. And that's a fine line with our handlers. Uh, you, you hit that on the head again too, Shane is they need a ton of trauma supplies for even, you know, suspect care um, after a bite, if not dealing with us, if we're hurt or they're hurt or their dogs hurt. Um, and I can't tell you how much redundant stuff other other team members are carrying that they're going to be back up for the canine handler. And, you know, we see that in military teams as well, right. but no, you hit it. I mean, it's pretty much a mirror image of what we would run and what we still are running. And um, when you mentioned tourniquets, having that one accessible that is not buried in your IFAC pack, absolutely. But we always made sure and continue to make sure to carry at least two. So we have a dirty tourniquet opportunity or a tourniquet we can use on somebody else. Um, if we, have used one, let's say, you know, and we, we at least have an extra. So everyone's carrying at least two. Um, and just your vibe on that. And also the civilian world of outdoor enthusiasts that aren't first responders that aren't carrying attack best. They haven't had all the training. Oh, you can't hear me. Mm-hmm. Shane, you there? You got me, Wayne? I got you. Shane. Oh, Shane lost us. Huh? That's weird. Yeah. Yeah, we can't hear you either, bud. Nothing here or here. Okay. Try your connections, Shane. If, plug if in not, plug. This, que- this question can hold off and we can... Sorry. You oh, got something. Sorry. Yep. Yeah, here well, we there are. You are. Yep, you're back. Did you that's, hit the switch? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, that's a... a no worries, brother. That's yeah. that's an easy edit. We're just glad we got you back. But I was yeah. just... I was talking about the, the two tourniquet, you know, per officer, typically what we were doing... Yeah. Uh, at least on the, on the operations level now for patrol, not necessarily, but we ran it that way. It's one always, always accessible immediately. And then maybe another one in the pack if you had room, but keeping that pack light. And then second question after that is let's think about the outdoor enthusiast. That's the backcountry hunter, the hiker, the skier, whatever the case may be, not haven't had this training don't have a law enforcement or military job. They don't have this stuff issued. They don't practice with it. Um, Schools for them, you know, we're seeing more and more of this pop up in, in the civilian world. Um, I've even been asked to do that with 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 trauma nurses and stuff that I work with on the tactical side where we do a wilderness medicine day. We do a tactical carbine and a pistol and I host a three day school. And this is just the demands for that are crazy right now um, is everybody's wanting to be just better prepared. So your thoughts on that? Any advice would really help as well. Yeah, I really like uh this new um, found appreciation for training and learning. Um, There is nothing secret about, about what I, what I teach. And and I think that's great. I'll tell everybody. Um, I thought about like teaching on my own and like on on the side. And of course, you know, friends and family, we kind of train up, we teach, we learn um, together, but most of them are military or medical anyways. So yeah. Um, Yeah all these like little pearls, um, for, for your average, like hiker hunter enthusiast. Uh, I know there was a little bit in hunter's ed that was coming out. I think Idaho was, was doing a little bit of it. Um, Idaho actually as part of their f- camp for kids and youth. They're mm-hmm. actually incorporating a little bit of first aid as well. Almost like kind of, I call it boy scout level training, but I don't exactly awesome. know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah just the basics and, and the awareness, um, to be able to do that. I think online is, is come a long way. Um, the military paid a lot of money for deployed I think that's the, 
that it's all open source uh, information. It's a little bit more geared towards the military, but I mean, if you, if you understand the principles or if you're looking at it through the lens of how can I apply this to, to my world? Right. Um, right. Yeah. I, it, there's, there's a lot of um, providers in my area that are working with other nonprofits to provide training. I think stop the bleed has some great curriculum as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that's through the American college of surgeons. Um, I believe they've uh, they've, they've done a, a, a lot and that's, that's also a free training, free training resource. Um, and they gear it more towards, your average person that might not have gear and supplies with them. I think they teach touch a little bit on a tourniquet, um, but their main focus is, is just that initial stopping that bleed, keeping the patient warm and kind of getting them or, or staying safe themselves. Right. Um, that's another, that's another key piece. Um, what to do in the event of an, of a mass shooting, like keeping yourself safe, understanding. And I know I'm air force and my colleagues said to apply this, like the difference between cover and concealment. Um, <laughs> right. Not, not so much. I, I joke about that uh, a lot more than I probably should. But, but again, like, uh, you know, that getting that understanding out, getting that information out. Um, yeah, super supportive. Uh, there's a lot of people out there that will have really expensive classes that you can take. And to that, to that point, I would say, you know, maybe avoid some of those, you know, the, the higher end, because there's a reason why there's, a heavy emphasis on shooting and all these other things. It's because that's the fun stuff. Right. Um, right. You know, and, and reality is it's like, okay, what do we, what, what is practical? What is reasonable? Um, the experience of the instructors and things like that. Um, and kind of going from there, but I think we'll only see an increase in that. Um, hopefully there's, there's a lack of like kind of that predatory, like look towards um, you, you shouldn't be paying like, you know, $3,000 for, Right, right. Medicine class. It's only a few days long. I don't care how many rounds you get the fire. Like it's <laughs> yeah. not a tactical medicine class at that point. Yeah. And, and there's, and like you said, there's a lot of good training out there. I, I think the critical thing for everybody to realize is make sure it's vetted and, and make sure it's comprehensive, right? Right. It's comprehensive on the medical trauma side. It's comprehensive on the, you know, the shooting skill side, um, shelter in place, understanding. And you know what? We teach that uh, to civilian NLE groups all the time or upcoming even search and rescue people, the difference between cover and concealment if you're mm-hmm. in an active shooter situation, rural or urban. And that's not a lot to cover, but so it's funny how so few people outside of our world of operations know that. Um, so, yeah, good points there. And I think we get a lot of questions, a lot of calls on what class should I attend? What do you offer for training? Blah, 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 blah. And there could be a hundred more of what we're trying to do here, all of us on this call, right? And hopefully right. there are going to be more. But I, but the the increase in desire for the training is super encouraging in the current state of the nation and just uh, things people are wanting to be prepared for. So that's good stuff. And on that note, Shane, what where can people get a hold of you mm. to book a class, whether it's a game warden agency, police agency, um, whatever they want to get from you guys at the highest level that we can help promote on your end and, and tell us where they can reach you. Or, or host a class too. That's something, you know, a smaller exactly. agency could host and invite all kinds of people. Yeah. And what Absolutely. size are your classes generally? Uh, that's another question. So, so we, we try to, we try to work it on a ratio um, of uh, basically about one to 10 for students. I think that's actually a little on the high end. <laughs> Um, but there's like a little cost benefit that we do, right? When we mm-hmm. look at the, uh, yeah. we, look, we look at that, what we're doing, we're like, okay, one to six is probably ideal. Um, but 
okay, let's, let's, it, it's, it is, there is an expense that, you know, we're funded to do this and, and you know, we have all of these things that, you know, maybe I would say politics, but it's probably not even politics. Um, so mm-hmm. one to 10 is about, is about right. Um, it's, it's, it's a little, a little threadbare in certain areas, but, um, we can kind of make up for it. with just the more reps that we do. Um, we've, we're Western region and, and, and focused. So, Basically, that's Western, uh, almost of the continental divide, um, if you will. So California, um, we teach down there quite a bit. Um, let's see, Alaska, Hawaii. Um, and then we have some, some one-offs that we do um, just based on engagements and requests and things like that that we, that we look towards other, other states like Chicago SWAT. Um, mm-hmm. How can you turn down a request to, to train in uh, the Chicago SWAT department? Uh, yeah. Teams, right? mm. <laughs> um, and and I can't as as a as a as a as a Cubs fan and as a hockey fan, you know, yeah. uh, I can't I can't turn that down. <laughs> right. <laughs> so awesome. um, so yeah, so we have a, a website. It's uh um, basically it's it's wrctc.org that we can uh, that that they, there's all sorts of training. Um, we're geared towards law enforcement, so training um, civilian law enforcement. And we do also contract classes and, and things like that um, to try to get some uh, some additional training out there and things that the military wouldn't necessarily uh, be the expert on. So, like if I have a really high, um, awesome detective that's really good at the dark web investigation things and, and, mm-hmm. and whatnot, you know, let's leverage some of his experience and knowledge to teach sure. something. Um, but yeah, so it is it is gated for law enforcement. So. Um, cause there's a, we have a nexus, um, for who we can teach and why, because it is mm-hmm. a federal program counter drug. Um, but generally speaking, law enforcement is, is, um, civilian law enforcement usually have no issues attending training, getting in training. Um, calendar is pretty full. We're, we're pretty busy. I would imagine. Yeah. yeah. General. Um, yeah. So, um, I think we're, we're on pace to beat what we did last year. Um, I certainly have done a significant amount of traveling. Um, I don't re- exactly remember my hours right now. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so that's, that's kind of how they can get a hold of us. Um, let's see. What have you guys, what have you guys seen um, in terms of, you know, increased hazards for officers? Like I did a little bit of studying up on, um, on some of those um, banned substances and some of the, the carbofurans and things like that, that you were, that you were had a, as a target hazard there, John, but what else are you guys seeing out there in the world? Uh, I know it's, it's, you know, kind of all out there, but a train derailment, right? Like that could mm-hmm. be. Yeah. Not- well, train derailment, definitely with the increase of it, um, these toxic spills and, you know, for game wardens or, or anybody in, in rural law enforcement, it's just substance exposure. It doesn't have to be carbofuran, like an EPA-banned nerve agent. It can yeah. be a petroleum product. You know, it's some of these natural chemicals you see in um, urban settings, manufacturing, commercial processing. And we we have a lot of exposure issues with that in the more semi-urban areas. Um, I just did a couple of uh, ad hoc talks about carbofuran and other things for uh san jose fire department over here in the silicon valley where i'm from and those guys are getting into so many more chemical exposures and hazardous material exposures that go so far out of the realm of what the common ones are that we think about when a tanker goes over something so definitely that's you know high priority right now that we're going to be dealing with and how to how to treat that how to you know lessen that exposure immediately and 
transport as quickly as you can safely for the stuff you're going to need that we we don't have at the you know operational trauma care level on site first thing that comes to my mind for sure right now nationally mm-hmm. so yeah well, I always would say, like, if Home Depot catches on fire, it's a bad day because yeah. everything, right? And it's a catalyst. It's a big melting pot of everything burning. Yep. Um, garages, um, I mean, everybody in California likes to have their lawns really green and, mm-hmm. and all of that. And that takes a lot of product to be able to do that. So when their garage catches on fire, like, that was always a hazard for us seeing that. Right, um, right. Florida, it's a whole nother ball of game because it, it – washes into the rivers and and the waterways and stuff and we have toxic algae blooms and mm-hmm. and all these other things right so that's always another an, another thing less in the law enforcement just more on the environmental like steward and thinking i, I would like to go to the beach today and i can't yeah, um, yeah yeah so uh so i did some digging um with the nerve agent exposure and everything um couple of um couple of basically bo- mechanisms that the body that it works on with the body. Obviously you have like the, your classic nerve agent exposures. So like the sludgem acronym on like the, um, the, um, the muscarinic, um, the, the systems. So that's where, uh, an antidote would be atropine, which I know right. you're familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, also the other one is pralidoxine, um, another, another, uh, antidote. And usually these are like nerve agent in- injectors and things like that. Um, to, uh, for antidotes, but the interesting piece was, is the time that you have or that yes. you don't have to recognize and then antidote appropriately based right. on, you know, these bonds that get um, formed in at the, at the, uh, at the chemical level within your body. And so that was pretty striking to me. And so um, that would be another piece because we think massive bleeding, right? March algorithm when we're going down the list. Like where does the antidote really, really look at and, yeah, or and where does it really fit? Right. So the timeline that I came up with um, that I was looking at was about two minutes before yeah. kind of irreversible, you know, exposure occurs. <laughs> and so how long do you think it would take a, a normal person to bleed out? Depends the injury. I mean, you guys are deer hunters. You guys know. Like, yeah. Yeah. Is it a flesh I mean, a hunter, right? It's the longest, like, I don't know. It feels like an eternity, right? Like, but, um, but yeah, average human, you know, uh, we've seen videos, uh, you know, videos of, you know, robberies gone bad or stabbings or whatever, yeah. where it's like as low as 30 seconds before there's like a loss of consciousness. Um, but then more like about 90 seconds. Um, mm-hmm. so a little bit over two minutes. But then when we look at two minutes for, um, and, that, and that's irreversible, like, you know, the, the patient, um, is deceased at that point, but, we're looking at antidotes, obviously, yeah, where massive bleeding, I think would still be a priority because we want to stop that bleeding, but that antidote is just right up there, right next to that, um, yeah, as yeah. well. And being able to think about that in, in an exposure. So, so your, um, your punji pit, um, you know, experiences, uh, just, just being able to think about that with the hazard as well. Like what is, what is actually going on and then, you know, recognizing your symptoms as well. So, Unfortunately, it's still it's still a thing that we we need to be worried about. Um, you know, even even yeah, today, yeah. I think um, if if it's not if it's not marijuana they're growing in the woods, there's something else that's going on in our in our natural areas. Um, you know, people are taking advantage of of our resources or of the lack of you know or or of all the reasons why we want to go out in the woods, right? Anyways, because it's isolated, it's away from people. 
you know, um, there's natural resources out there and, and we can cover, that can cover up and hide illicit yeah. activities. So, um, pretty cool, pretty cool. Um, pretty cool th- thought process though, uh, on at least the carbofurin with the antidotes and, and, and that timeliness and that speed that you have to be able to have. Um, and that's certainly something that you could, that we can train to as, um, as responders and be able to, to cross train and be able to recognize those, those signs and symptoms, um, as well. Yeah, kind of adapting to some of the new threats, right, Shane? And and something we've seen now is we've seen this shift from the outdoor public land deep in the forest cartel grows now with regulated states. Now it's the hoop house in a backyard. And so so when I was talking to the San Jose fire guys about this, they're seeing these indoor grows literally in the city of San Jose or, or, you know, surrounding cities, let's say um, a rural, you know, farming community where you have a big grow house right in the backyard and they have all those same poisons. If it's an illegal grow, now they're concentrated in an enclosed space. Mm-hmm. And that's what we've been seeing these last couple of years and covering in, in some of our documentaries and whatnot. And I can say firsthand from last summer of being with Siskiyou County in Northern California, everybody wanting to rush in to, uh, you know, some press crews wanting to rush into a grow that they're covering as the sheriffs raid it in a confined space. And there's carbofuran or, or a similar chemical on 2000 plants with no ventilation, you know, right. and how many people would have been exposed in that, taking that toxic in and okay, all those atropine pins from the medic that fortunately had them there. Uh, we, yeah, we, we, we might've not had enough, but that's the problem now is it's right in plain sight. So if kids stumble into a grow house, if a neighbor does, even somebody that is working in it doesn't know what's been put on this stuff, um, you're going to have that exposure. And we're already seeing more and more of that nationally right now, as this problem comes up and who would have thought that would have ever been an issue 10 years ago, but here we are. So I'm glad you brought that up and, and just adapting to these, these, uh, these threats, and half the problem is knowledge, you know, I mean, people just don't know. And so we're vastly ill-prepared and we're not going to have that antidote or even know what we need um, if, if exposed to something we don't recognize. So that's that's a big awareness hit out here on the West. And we're starting to see it in the East, too, where, where Wayne's at and, and the Midwest. So good point. And we will continue to talk about that and and educate as much as we can on that as we as we see more of this happen. Yeah, I think I think that again that that goes to your intel and in your building process of what you're doing in your area, knowing what's going on. Mm. Um, all too often, we don't exactly know what's going on in our own backyard until something happens, something tragic happens, and then now we learn. And then, okay, how are we going to deal with this with, with this threat with this challenge that we right. have on the east Go coast? On. And I maybe John's been seeing this was the one pot cooks that they they cook off their drugs in a yes. you know a yeah. three liter bottle and they're chucking it out. We had one section of road that they yeah. found over thirty of them. So a hazmat area. Um, and you know, the, the good thing is to go out to clean roadsides up in the spring mm-hmm. and just think of what you're exposing people to. So, um, certainly, uh, those are the dangers to the general public that are very unaware and to making them more aware of the, the chemical stuff that, 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 that is out there. And that's for sure. And I don't know how many videos we've seen a police officer sniffing something that they found in the back of a trunk and, right. you know, dead right. next. And yeah, that, that is an upcoming thing. That's something we don't realize that we need to put into our training as well as uh, not not to be doing those, not to be handling those. And again, you know, I was very opposed to using Narcan at, at the beginning, but, you know, it's saving more police officers' lives than anybody's because they're, they're coming across in their searches, they're getting in on their person and arrest, and mm-hmm. they need to use the Narcan on them because of that, as well as, you know, people they're running into. So it's, uh, 
you know, th- those things are we're, we're seeing and are developing nationwide, and it's 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 kind of scary on that side because it's generally an unknown of what you're dealing with. Exactly. Yeah. Hmm. But I will ask you, Shane, to finish finish the the story about the main game warden. So, did they trim that down, or did Life Flight fly away and leave the impaled guy because it wasn't in the slot limit? So. <laughs> <laughs> no, so, uh, so yeah, he, he, the game warden's still paying restitution on that. Guilty as charged. He had to trim it a second time. Okay, um, okay. Yeah. So that's even, I mean, you think about a conscious patient and, like, feeling it the first time, like, he was uh, probably too excited to have yeah. it a second time. That was... Uh, uh, so it, the moral of the story is to, to cut it as close as possibly you can. <laughs> Yeah, I, I would, especially if you know you're going to have to uh, get in an enclosed environment. You know, transport this patient yeah. out there in a helicopter. They're not they're not so big on the inside. No, for yeah. sure. I appreciate that story, and I figured it'd be a good place to wrap up. But your website, once again, please, so people can uh, to look at that and uh, check you guys out. It's uh, wrctc.org. Excellent. No, we really appreciate you joining us on the Thin Green Line and giving us this medical lesson. Um, any departing thoughts? Yeah, so honestly, um, I'm not educated enough to use uh, philosophical razors in an appropriate sense, but one that does stick um, to my mind is Occam's razor. So simplest explanation is probably the you know the right explanation, simplest um, solution is probably the the best solution so um honestly like like my analogy you you bomb off a a snowmobile trail you find your patient he's got a massive bleed you don't have your gear on you just just grabbing stopping that bleed digitally with your hand um you know above that wound and then bringing your patient to the gear um allows you to kind of solve that geography problem and then also get your patient to that that level of care and then continuing on and that's and that's really what we're seeing nowadays um, for the for the studies and anecdotes and, and all these things with tactical medicine. So mm. it's, a, it's a big key. And it, it's light years from when I first started with this. So I yeah. uh, really appreciate what what I've what I've been able to do and and, and, and everything is that it's just because of the support of the community and law enforcement officers in general. Um, listening to what I have to say, the Air Force guy talking about tactical medicine, um, which I think is humor, a little humorous. Um, Really, the most rewarding thing that I felt like I've done in the military, um, I joined the Guard to serve my community, um, whereas active duty, uh, you know, I, I worked on the base and, you know, out in the great wilds of eastern Washington. But now um, I have more of a stake in the community. I'm training up law enforcement, learning lessons that I've learned, lessons that were written in blood. And so they're going forward and treating patients, taking care of their buddies, Everybody is going home, hopefully, um, and just working to be better every day. And so, so that's that's the 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 thing that I that I walk away with the, from when I when I hang up the uniform and I'm done. That's what I'll leave, uh, knowing that I've trained others to uh, to be that much better and to save lives. And so, um, pretty remarkable for me to be able to do that. And I'm humbled at the opportunity because, like I said, it's not just me doing this. I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. Um, that have learned all this the hard way, um, that have lost buddies, and and I'm just trying to, uh, to to pass on as much knowledge as I can based on the medicine that's out there. Well, we are uh, we are grateful for all you're doing, brother. And certainly, if we can help your program in any way through the podcast or any other outreach mechanisms we have, we're gl- we're great to, glad to. And uh, 
look forward to working with you again. We'll keep it going. Yes, yeah, for sure. Thank you for your service, Shane. Shane Bedard, Air Force National Guard. <laughs>